if you have your study notes before you, it's different than the bulletin. Um, it's, you know, you're thinking about things of this week, and, and you're wrestling with all that's going on. And um, and and I, as I was thinking about the passage yesterday, looking at the sermon that I had planned for this morning, I'm like, you know what? This isn't not really a good sermon for us tomorrow. It's not. Probably because there's two reasons. Number one is is that I want us to hear that sermon because I think it's important. Um, but that sermon doesn't really speak to the moment, and I really felt like that we needed something that does speak to the moment. That we need to understand, you know, what is going on around us a little more. So I, I decided to switch passages, and we're going to be looking at John chapter eleven this morning. Um, we actually were in John chapter 11 for Easter. We're going to move on past where we were at Easter and look at a different section of it. And so, as we think about this week and the things that have unfolded, um, you know, it's like all of a sudden COVID-19 is gone, it's just swept away, and then another new cycle thing comes up, and uh, here we are. Um, there's no easy answers. There, there just are not. Um, but... There's hope. There is hope. And so let's read about that hope this morning, and we're going to talk about it. What we're going to do is we're going to read John 11. We're going to read from verse 17 through 44. Um, you can read the first half of this uh, particular event in Jesus' life, uh, maybe sometime this afternoon. Uh, but we're going to read this passage, and then we're going to jump and set the context for this passage back in the book of Genesis. So let's read John chapter 11, uh, verses 17 through 44. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus was already, had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and, and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, he went... Uh, and met him. Uh, but Mary remained seated in her house. Uh, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give it to you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here, and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly, and she went to him. Jesus had not yet come into the village, but he was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly to go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying, Lord, if you had been there, here, uh, my brother 
would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come out with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in His spirit, greatly troubled. And He said, Where have you laid Him? And they said to Him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how He loved Him? But some of them said, Could not He who... Open the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. This is the reading of God's holy word. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for your word. May it penetrate our heart. May we see Jesus. May we respond to Jesus. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want us to sort of focus on this aspect today that Jesus came and wept with us in this cursed and broken world. When we are faced with tragedy, whether personal or something like we have faced this week in America, we, we really wonder why. You know, as I scrolled the headlines uh, over the last few days and I've watched the various videos of the death of a man at, at the knee of a peace officer, uh, all the looting and rioting of broken souls in city after city after city across the United States. Um, we have experts telling us and talking heads talking, in-depth analysis, and, and, and all of this sort of looks at, oh, you, you know, as we think about it, what is going on? And the questions are asking, what is going on? And I think sometimes we overlook the question of how can we do something about this? But it's difficult, isn't it? And so we want to look today at the, the, the reason for suffering and brokenness in our world. I want us to think about it. And so if you would flip over to Genesis 3 with me. Genesis chapter 3. We all know this passage well. If you sit under uh, my preaching and teaching uh, for a period of time, you will see that I do a lot of foundational thinking. I set things up on foundations because I think hooks are important for us to hang our lives on. We need a worldview to live by. In this particular passage today, um, John 11 and Genesis 3 set us that foundation. Genesis 3 we're going to look at and consider in light of John 11, in other words. And so, 
the first thing I want us to look at is the biblical reason for the mess that we are in. Dan McCartney, who was a, is a friend of mine, a former professor at one of the seminaries here in Dallas, um, wrote a book that I bought years ago. And in that book, I read one of the most profound writings about why we suffer that I'd ever read. And so I'm taking a lot of what he said um, this morning here in this section. Um, he helps us to better understand the reason for tragedies and to consider suffering in the world that we live in. And he answers that. He does that by answering two fundamental questions. What is suffering, first of all? And then secondly, what is the origin of suffering? And so what is suffering? This may sound like a really silly question, right? We all sort of know. But as McCarthy points out, there's a difference between experiencing something and knowing what it is. And so if you look at the word suffer in the New Testament, it is important to notice that it is never used for pain. Pain can actually be a good thing that keeps us safe, though it does hurt. Uh, perhaps if you have any friend that has lep leprosy, you could ask them, why is pain good? When it comes to suffering in the New Testament, it is almost always referring to oppression or something that is, is caused by wickedness. In fact, McCarthy notes, it most often refers to Christ's suffering or the suffering that Christians experience because they belong to Christ. Now, when it comes to the Old Testament, in the Old Testament Hebrew, it does not really have a word that quite matches the Greek word for suffer. It, it is a little more descriptive uh, related wording, such as affliction, uh, trouble, oppression, grief, uh, which indicates poverty or of humiliating condition. These words, too, indicate conditions caused by evil. So when you balance out the scriptures on this topic, it appears that biblically speaking, suffering is the, is the soul's response. Suffering is the soul's response to experiencing evil. Now, it is manifested in the evil disruption or alienation of our bodies that might be physical suffering. Uh, the alienation within yourself, it may be trauma, it may be depression, it may be jealousy, self-hatred, psychosis, hopelessness, humiliation. In this, you may perhaps feel abandoned by and separated from God. Finally, it is manifested in the form of alienation from others. Oppression, um, racism, hatred, betrayal, abandonment. And the list goes on. So that is what suffering is. It is the soul's response to experiencing evil. But this leads us to the second question. Uh, McCartney wrestles with it. And, and he kind of wants us to dig through Genesis here. And to figure out where does suffering originate? Why do we suffer suffering? Why is there such tragic, frightening, unfathomable happenings in this world? Let's look at sin's origin. Look at, again, Genesis chapter 3. Suffering is amazingly the first issue addressed after the creation. Why would that be? The simple answer is, Adam and Eve tried to declare their independence from God. 
You want to look at it in an interesting way? They had a little tea party, didn't they? It's very fascinating to think about, isn't it? They had a riot, so to speak. Adam and Eve tried to declare their independence from God, and as a result, human life was cursed. After taking and eating the fruit that God had forbidden, we see this curse unfold in three segments here in Genesis chapter 3. McCartney reminds us that the most significant curse fell on the serpent, if you'll look in verses 14 through 17. God was not only about, God was not about to allow humanity to be Satan's tame pet. So God first dealt with a per- perpetrator of this great evil of leading Adam and Eve into rebellion and sin by setting up a war against Satan. God is a God of peace, but He does not make peace with Satan. We have to understand that. He is a God of peace, but He will never make peace with Satan. In fact, it is because He is a God of peace that He is at war and sets us at war with Satan. And so Satan is not holding back anything in this war. He hates humanity because obviously it reminds him of God. And so humanity, the image of God, has become Satan's target for getting back at God. You can read about that in 1 Peter 5, 8 and following. But we should also remember that humankind is also a bane to Satan. God also cursed the rebellious woman. If you look at the text in verse 16, I will greatly increase your pains in childbirth. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Many people have asked, what does that mean? What does that mean exactly? Well, I don't know, but consider the reality of the curse in our own lives. Let's look at that. This is not just increasing childbirth pain, but pain in actually raising children. Ladies, you who have raised children, is it not painful sometimes? Is it not hard? Yes, it is. What about pain in relationship when you look at this text again? Pain in relationships between husbands and wives. Is it not hard? Pain in relationships in that family unit. Perhaps more suffering is generated within families than in any other social arena. Think about it. Finally, God cursed Adam. Adam represented all humans for his rebellion in verses 17 through 19. Here the ground is cursed, resulting in all humanity having a tough life. And then at the end of it comes what? Death. So it's a struggle. It's hard. Things are difficult. And then you die. One of the main points of Genesis then is this. And hear me. God has ordained suffering. We don't like that sometimes, do we? As a matter of fact, the world will point a finger at us and say, see, it's, you know, if God were a good God, and then then we read Genesis and we really take it in and we really think about it, what it tells us is, is that God has ordained suffering. 
Satan didn't establish the curse. He didn't have the power to. God did. Suffering for all of mankind is a result of God's curse and light of man's rebellion. Now positively, let's turn this around and look at it because we always have to look at things from a lot of different angles. Let's turn this around and look at it. Positively, suffering is not something outside of his dominion and control. So when we read Genesis 3 on a deeper level, suffering is not merely punitive. We have to understand it's not merely punitive. It is not God's vindictive bashing of humanity for his disobedience. It is also unbelievably redemptive. It is God's means of restoring rightness to His creation and to rescuing us from the evil situation that we have produced for ourselves. What does the Bible mean by this? Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden and denied access to the tree of life. The curse therefore condemned them to death. God could not nor did not shrug off our rebellion. But it turned out that the most redemptive act of all is what? Death. The death of the ultimate human being. The death of the second person of the Trinity. Jesus Christ. Jesus came as a baby so that by growing up, Um, And being perfectly righteous, he was able to take on the curse on himself. I mean, think about it just for a moment. Uh, he, He came here for that purpose as a baby. And he grew up perfectly righteous. And then he took on himself the curse. And what that does then is it has that great exchange. He exchanges the curse that I deserve. He takes it on. And He gives me His righteousness. God transformed the curse into redemption. Including the curse that we experience in our own sufferings. So as we think about that, let's pause and just review this just for a moment. That we really have the foundation as we come back to John chapter 11. Suffering is biblically speaking the soul's response to experiencing evil. Secondly, it comes as a consequence of the curse, but our susceptibility to suffering and the ultimate causes for the imposition of suffering lie in humanity's great rebellion. Number three, suffering is not nor has never been outside of God's control. And a correct understanding points to suffering as God's means of restoring rightness to His creation and rescuing us from the evil mess that we have produced for ourselves. Finally, Jesus Himself suffered. 1 Peter tells us in chapter 2 that Jesus committed no sin and yet He was reviled. He bore our sins on the tree that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. For by His wounds we have been healed. So with that in mind, with that foundation in mind, now let's turn back to John chapter 11. First thing I want you to understand out of this passage, I'm just kind of pulling out points for us this morning for us to grasp. 
First thing I want you to get is that Jesus entered into our trouble in this world. He came into a world that was cursed. That was the plan. In verse 33, we see that when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, that He was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. This tells us much about the man Jesus, doesn't it? Up to this point, He had been perfectly calm. If you go back in the story, He's perfectly calm. He, he knows what's going on. He, if you go back in the first part of the section, He tells the people, you know, His disciples, He tells them, you know, um, this is for God's glory. And He had reassured Martha that her brother would rise. He was completely in command of the situation and even challenged Martha's faith. But when Mary appeared, crushed in sorrow and accompanied by the waiting mourners, the text here reveals something of Jesus' humanity and even possibly His his Godness is that He was deeply moved with emotion. His feeling was expressed here in the text by three words. He's deeply moved, he's greatly troubled, and he wept. The first of these, deeply moved, means literally to snort like a horse. And it generally means anger. And I believe it expresses his anger against the ravages of death that had entered into the human world because of sin. Doesn't sin make you angry? Do you ever get angry at your own self because of your own sin? I do. Do you get angry at other people because of their sin? I believe Jesus uh, was deeply moved here and and the idea snorted is He's looking at it and He's like, oh! The second word here that we have is troubled. Troubled. It expresses agitation, confusion, or disorganization. Here, it implies agitation. Uh, Jesus is not, um, was not apathetic or unnerved by the prevailing mood of sorrow. Uh, Lazarus had been a beloved friend, and Jesus shared the common feeling of grief over his friend's death. His human feelings were normal and are revealed By the crisis of the moment. He's overcome with emotion. And so he then gives away as he's thinking about this. As it's settling on him. I almost see it like if you guys remember the little house on the prairie. Michael Landon could cry on a dime. He just sees it. He just starts crying. He's weeping. He burst into tears. His, His grief is spontaneous. The pointed thing that we need to see here, the pointed thing that we need to see is that he cared. He wept. He cares that uh, Lazarus died, that his sisters are distraught, that death is a consuming enemy. That people were using the moment to stir up If he were here in our country today, I would think that he would weep as well. 
Because I know that he cares about the man who lost his life. He cares about the, the family that lost a brother, a brother-in-law, a father. He cares about people losing their livelihood to senseless rioting and looting and violence. He cares about the need of, of some sort of, uh, of reconciliation that uh, we just can't seem to find. We can't seem to, 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 to come to a place where we can reconcile. He cares about people lost and their sin, empowering it over others, being destructive and violent. He cares. So we need to understand that Jesus has entered into this troubled world with us. The second thing that we need to see here in, in Jesus' response to suffering is that Jesus prayed. And that secondly, He is the, the resurrection power. Um, the text says here in verse 41, and Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven. And he says, Father, thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these words, what did he do? He cried out, Lazarus, come out. I actually like the King James. I think it's the King James that has it. Lazarus, come forth. I like that better than the ESV here. Lazarus, come forth. Sometimes when I'm calling my kids, I'll say, Mia, come forth. Ian, come forth. Because they're like the dead in the room, you know. Jesus had told Martha earlier in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives shall believe and shall never die. He proved those statements, didn't he? Do we believe that? Do we really believe that He is the resurrection and the life? Then that's what He's asking her to believe. That He truly is that. This means that He is the only thing, the only one that we can find in this world to have solace in. I have looked, I have prayed before I became a Christian. I looked at all sorts of things. What, what in the world? What, what, what do you believe in? What makes sense out of this world? This is it. We can find no other peace. We can find no other shalom. But in the Prince of Peace, Jesus Himself. And so brothers and sisters in Christ, that's where we have to look. And that's what we who have, who have said, I am a believer in Jesus Christ. That's what we have to hold on to and believe and set our foundations on. If we claim to be a child of God, in other words, in John, in our study with John, that's what we've been seeing. If you claim to be a child of God, you'll love the brothers. You'll, you'll believe in Jesus and what the Scripture teaches and what the apostles teach about Jesus. And out of that heart, you'll obey. You'll, and it doesn't mean we do it all perfectly. It doesn't mean that. We went over that again and again. But it does mean that our life trajectory will be that way. And it ought to be more and more that way. 
And so what might that look like then as we apply this this, this aspect of Genesis 3, John 11, Jesus coming into our world, identifying with us, weeping and crying out, and yet He is the resurrection and the life. What are we to do with that? First of all, we are to repent. And I mean the church. It's got to start with the church first. And, and we ought to be careful about pointing fingers. We need to point fingers here and say, I need to repent first. This morning I read this. I thought it was pretty interesting. A pastor who I don't know, but a pastor friend of mine reposted this. And I thought, this is so right on. I'm just going to throw up my sermon. He said this. Listen, coronavirus, murder hornets, peace officers who kill, people protesting the killing by looting and burning of property of innocents. Doesn't that just sound ridiculous? But that's the craziness of rebellion, isn't it? And he says, we are likely to struggle to understand uh, God's providence in all this. How do we pray? How, how do we pray for ourselves, these plagues? And he says, are these the enemies of God? Or is God through them asking, do I have your attention yet? I think we need to consider that. He lists ten things. See if you can follow along why he lists these ten things. Number one, he placed every, we have placed every imaginable God before the Lord. We have made graven images out of sports and sex and wealth and human reason and a long list of things we've bowed down to and served. We made light of and sullied God's name with fervent creativity. We made the Sabbath less holy than the other six days of the week. We dishonored parents and presidents and the elderly and God the Father. We've murdered millions of the most vulnerable of innocents. We've turned adultery and other sexual sins into sport. We've stolen money and time and respect and dignity from those to whom it belongs. We falsely witness by spreading internet rumors and in courts of law. We've turned coveting into an art form. I think we need to look at our hearts and we need to repent. We need to repent. The second thing I think we see from this that we need to sort of look at is our prayer lives. We need to pray. And what I mean by that, we need to pray for understanding. You know, kind of tied into this again, things look dark, but we do not yet know what the Lord's will in is in all this. You know, what is His will in this COVID virus? What is His will in, in this particular unrest in our nation? We don't know. But we ought to pray for understanding. We ought to pray for peace. We ought to pray for humility. We ought to pray and make um, you know, racial reconciliation a matter of our, of our really daily prayer because I don't know how we're going to get past this. You know, I see the conversations on Facebook and I'm like, I don't know that that really helps us. You know, I just don't. How do we, how do we do? I don't know. That's why we need wisdom from the Lord. Third thing we need to do is we need to listen. 
not to the media, not to their arguments and the arguments on Facebook, but we need to listen to the Word of God. We need to read it. We need to hear it. We need to think about what it tells us. You know, how do we view other people? Do we, do we view them as, you know, when we look out there, do we view them as lower than ourselves? Or do we view them as, you know, you could look at those riders and you could just, but you could also go, you know what, if I weren't a believer, I might be in that situation too. See the difference there? We need to pray and we need to listen and we need to, you know, maybe connect with, I know many of us have ethnic friends with their backgrounds and, and maybe specifically with African Americans, we need to ask them, how do you feel about this without judging? And I know from my conversations with people like that, they're, they're afraid to be honest most of the time. Maybe in a situation like this, they won't be. And maybe you can be a safe person where they can pour out their anger and yell at you. And you can be free to say, I'll receive it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yell it out so that someone doesn't run off and do something they shouldn't do somewhere else. Does that make sense? I think another thing we can do is connect. If you do not have friends from other ethnic backgrounds, like I've just mentioned, you know, find someone, ask the Lord, put someone in my place. It's difficult. It's hard. I don't necessarily think it's hard. And, you know, I'm going to be honest. I don't always think it's hard because of skin color. I think it's hard because of culture. And I think sometimes we put too much stock in skin color. And I wish we wouldn't talk about it so much. There are cultural issues, though. You know, but if you look back in America, you know, even, you know, you, what people you call white, the Scots and the Irish and the Dutch and the, and the uh, Italian and all lived in their areas. I mean, you know, it's like we, we have to figure out a way to, to, to relate to one another and to be um, Americans. And, and, but even more so, let me put it this way, even more so Christians. When you look in the New Testament, once those people, you know, the Holy Spirit is poured out, you see these people really, really coming together from all these different ethnic groups. It's a beautiful thing to the Lord. In closing, I just want to say this. When we look at this, there is hope in Christ. As a matter of fact, I would say He is our only hope. And I don't know how long He, you know, stuff like this will tarry until He comes again. But if we press into Him and if we reflect His beauty in this world, I think that there's, there's more heaven on earth and more people will come. At least that's how I see the Scripture. But He's doing the work. He is doing it through us. It's not us doing it. So I think if you would rest in Him and trust in Him and really look to Him, He'll help us as a church be an answer. Tim Keller says when we talk about the resurrection and all things the way it's supposed to be, he puts it in these words. After the great climax of the trilogy, Lord of the Rings, Sam Gamgee discovers that his friend Gandalf is not dead as he had thought, but alive. And he cries out, man, I thought you were dead. But I thought I was dead too myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Listen to the answer to Christianity. To that question is yes. Everything sad is going to come untrue 
And it will somehow be greater for having once been broken and lost. So let us look to Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, I want to thank you so much for your love and mercy. I want to thank you for your grace. I ask that you would give us peace. Because we need to be a peaceful people in this time. I ask you, Lord, to give us perspective because we need wisdom. We need to be peaceful and gentle and open to reason and full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. I pray for patience because, Lord, you had have you have had patience and kindness and forbearance and love toward us. And we pray for an outpouring. We, we need an outpouring of your great wisdom, Lord. We need you to direct our hearts, direct our souls, and to help us, Lord, to know you. Let us not only know you, Lord, but be your representatives on this earth that others would know you. Others that we see out there in our nation who so desperately need you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.